This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. At the Sign of the Jack-O-Lantern by Myrtle Reed Chapter 2 The Day Afterward By the pitiless light of early morning, the house was even uglier than at night. With an irreverence essentially modern, Dorothy decided, while she was dressing, to have all the furniture taken out into the backyard, where she could look at it over at her leisure. She would make a bonfire of most of it, or, better yet, have it cut into wood for the fireplace. Thus Uncle Ebenezer's cumbrous bequest might be quickly transformed into comfort. And thought Dorothy, I'll take down that hideous portrait over the mantel before I'm a day older. But when she broached the subject to Harlan, she found him unresponsive, and somewhat disinclined to interfere with the existing order of things. We'll be here only for the summer, he said. So what's the use of monkeying with the furniture and burning up fifty or sixty beds? There's plenty of wood in the cellar. I don't like the furniture, she pouted. My dear, said Harlan, with patronizing kindness. As you grow older, you'll find lots of things on the planet which you don't like. Moreover, it'll be quite out of your power to cremate them, and it's just as well to begin adjusting yourself now. This bit of philosophy irritated Mrs. Carr unbearably. Do you mean to say, she demanded with rising temper, that you won't do as I ask you to? "'Do you mean to say,' inquired Harlan, wickedly, in exact imitation of her manner, "'that you won't do as I ask you to? Four weeks ago yesterday, if I remember rightly, you promised to obey me.' "'Don't remind me of what I'm ashamed of,' flashed Dorothy. "'If I'd known what a brute you were, I'd never have married you. You may be sure of that.' Claudius Tiberius insinuated himself between Harlan's feet and rubbed against his trousers, leaving a thin film of black fur in his wake. Being fastidious about his personal appearance, Harlan kicked Claudius Tiberius vigorously, grabbed his hat, and went out, slamming the door and whistling with an exaggerated cheerfulness. Brute! The word rankled deeply as he went downhill with his hands in his pockets, whistling determinedly. So Dorothy was sorry she had married him. After all he'd done for her, too, giving up a good position in New York, taking her halfway around the world on a honeymoon, and bringing her to a magnificent country residence in a fashionable locality for the summer. Safely screened by the hill, he turned back to look at the magnificent country residence, then swore softly under his breath as, for the first time, he took in the full meaning of the eccentric architecture. Perched high upon the hill, with intervening shrubbery carefully cut down, the Judson mansion was not one to inspire confidence in its possessor. Outwardly, it was grey and weather-worn, with the shingles dropping off in places. At the sides, the rambling wings and outside stairways branching off into space, conveyed the impression that the house had been recently subjected to a powerful influence of the centrifugal sort. But worst of all was the front elevation, 
with its two round windows, its narrow, long window in the center, and the low windows on either side of the front door, the grinning, distorted semblance of a human face. The bare, uncurtained windows loomed up boldly in the searching sunlight, which spared nothing. The blue smoke rising from the kitchen chimney appeared strangely like a plume streaming out from the rear. Harlan noted, too, that the railing of the narrow porch extended almost entirely across the front of the house, and remembered dimly that they had found the steps at one side of the porch the night before. Not a single unpleasant detail was in any way hidden, and he clutched instinctively at a tree as he realized that the supports of the railing were cunningly arranged to look like huge teeth. No wonder, he said to himself, that the stage driver called it the jack-o'-lantern. That's exactly what it is. Why didn't he paint it yellow and be done with it, the old devil? The last disrespectful allusion, of course, being meant for Uncle Ebenezer. Poor Dorothy, he thought again. I'll burn the whole thing, and she shall put every blamed crib into the putrefying flames. It's mine, and I can do what I please with it. We'll go away tomorrow. We'll go... Where could they go? With less than four hundred dollars? Especially when one hundred of it was promised for a typewriter. Harlan had parted with his managing editor on terms of great dignity, announcing that he had forsworn journalism and would hereafter devote himself to literature. The editor had remarked, somewhat cynically, that it was a better day for journalism than for literature, the fine inner meaning of the retort not having been fully evident to Harlan until he was some three squares away from the office. Much chastened in spirit and fully ready to accept his wife's estimate of him, he went downhill into Judson Center. It was the usual small town, the post office, grocery, meat market, and general loafing place being combined under one roof. Nearby was the blacksmith shop, and across from it was the inevitable saloon. Far up in the hills was the Judson Center Sanitarium, a worthy institution of some years' standing, where every human ailment, from tuberculosis to fits, was more or less successfully treated. Upon the inmates of the sanitarium, the inhabitants of Judson Center lived, both materially and mentally. Few of them had ever been nearer to it than the back door, but tales of dark doings were widely prevalent throughout the community, and mothers were wont to frighten their young offspring into obedience with threats of the sanatorium. Now what do you reckon ails him? asked the blacksmith of the stage driver as Harlan went into the village store. "'Wouldn't reckon nothing ailed him to look at him, would you?' queried the driver in reply. "'Indeed, no one looking at Mr. Carr would have suspected him of an ailment. "'He was tall and broad-shouldered and well set up, with clear grey eyes and a rosy, smooth-shaven boyish face, "'which had given him the nickname of the Cherub all along Newspaper Row. "'In his bearing there was a suggestion of boundless energy,' which needed only proper direction to accomplish wonders. "'You can never tell,' continued the driver, shifting his quid. "'Now I've took folks up there, going on ten year now, and some I've took up looked considerable more healthy than I be when I took em up, coming back house ever. It was different. One young feller rode up with me in the rain one night, 
a singin' and a whistlin' to beat the band. And when I took him back a month or so arterward, he had a strike nurse on one side of him and a doctor on the other, and was wearin' a shawl. Couldn't hardly set up, but he was a tryin' to joke just the same. Hank says he, when we got a little way off from the place, my book of life has been edited by the librarians and the entire appendix removed. Them's his very words. And says he, the time to have the appendix took out is before it does much of anything to your table of contents. The doctor shut him up then, and I didn't hear no more. But I remembered the language, and afterwards when I got a chance, I looked in the school teacher's dictionary. It said as how the appendix was something appended or added to, but I couldn't get no more about it. I've heard tell of a devil child with a tail to it what was traveling with the circus one year, and I've surmised as how maybe a tail had begun to grow on this young fellow and it was took off. You don't say, ejaculated the blacksmith. By reason of his professional connection with the sanitarium, Mr. Henry Blake was, in a sense, the oracle of Judson Center, and he enjoyed his proud distinction to the full. Ordinarily, he was taciturn, but the present hour found him in a conversational mood. "'He's married,' he went on, returning to the original subject. "'I took him and his wife up to the jack-o'-lantern last night, come in on the 947 from the junction. Reckon they're going to stay a spell, cause they've got trunks. One a reasonable size, another. That looks like a doghouse. Box two, that's got lead in it. Books, maybe, suggested the blacksmith with unexpected discernment. School teacher boarded to our house once, and she had most a carload of em. Educated folks has to have books to keep from losing their education. Don't take much stock in it myself, remarked the driver. It spiles most folks. As soon as they get some, they begin to pine and hanker for more. I knowed a feller once that begun with one book dropped on the road near the sanitarium, and he never stopped till he was plumb through college. And a woman up there sent my daughter a book once, and I took it right back to her. My daughter's got a book, says I, and she ain't a needin' of no duplicates. Keep it, says I, for somebody that ain't got no book. Do you reckon, asked the blacksmith after a long silence, that they're going to live in the jack-o'-lantern? I ain't a-sayin', answered Mr. Blake cautiously. They're educated, and there's no tellin' what educated folks is going to do. This young lady now that come up with him last night, she said it was a dear old place, and she loved it already. Them's her very words. Do tell. That's correct. And as I said before, when you're dealing with educated folks, you're swimming in deep water with the shore clean out of sight. Education was what ailed him. By a careless nod, Mr. Blake indicated the jack-o'-lantern, which could be seen from the main thoroughfare of Judson Center. I've heard he went on, taking a fresh bite from his morning purchase of plug, that he had one whole room mighty nigh plumb full of nothing but books, and there was always more coming by freight and express and through the post office. It's all on account of them books that he's made the front of oh, his house into what it is. 
my wife had a paper book once a tellin how to transfer a hopeless exterior with pictures of houses in it like they be here and more arta they'd been transferred you bet i burnt it while she was gone to sewin circle and there ain't no book come into my house since mr blake spoke with the virtuous air of one who has protected his home from contamination indeed as he had often said before you can't never tell what folks'll do when books get a holt of them do you reckon asked the blacksmith that there'll be company company snickered mr blake oh my lord yes a little thing like death ain't never going to keep company away ain't you never heard of how misery loves company the more miserable you are the more company you'll have and vice versa etc and the same hush warned the blacksmith in a harsh whisper he's a comin city feller grumbled mr blake affecting not to see good morning said harlan pleasantly though not without an air of condescension can you tell me where i can find the stage driver that's me grunted mr blake be you wantin anything only to pay you for taking us up to the house last night and to arrange about our trunks can you deliver them this afternoon i ain't a runnin of no livery but i can take em up if that's what you're wantin exactly said harlan and the box too if you will and the things i've just ordered at the grocery can you bring them too mr blake nodded helplessly and the blacksmith gazed at harlan open mouthed as he started uphill must sure have an ailment he commented but i hear tell hank that in the city they never carry nothing round with em but perhaps an umbrell everything else they have sent reckon it's true enough i took a ham once to the sanitarium for a young sprig of a doctor that was too proud to carry it himself he was going that way too walking up to save money so i charged him for carrying up the ham just what i'd have took both for pigs is high i told him same price for one as for another but he didn't pay no attention to it and never raised no kick about the price think about something else most likely most of em are harlan most assuredly was thinking about something else in fact he was possessed of portentous uneasiness there was well-defined doubt in his mind regarding his reception at the jack-o'-lantern dorothy's parting words had been plain almost to the point of rudeness he reflected unhappily and he was not sure that a brute would be allowed in her presence again the bare uncurtained windows gave no sign of human occupancy perhaps she had left him then his reason came to the rescue there was no way for her to go but downhill and he would certainly have seen her had she taken that path when he entered the yard he smelled smoke and ran wildly into the house a hasty search through all the rooms revealed nothing even dorothy had disappeared from the kitchen window he saw her in the back yard poking idly through a heap of smouldering rubbish with an old broomstick what are you doing he demanded breathlessly before she knew he was near her dorothy turned disguising her sudden start by a toss of her head oh she said coolly it's you is it 
Harlan bit his lips, and his eyes laughed. "'I say, Dorothy,' he began awkwardly. "'I was rather a beast, wasn't I?' "'Of course,' she returned in a small, unnatural voice, still poking through the ruins. "'I told you so, didn't I?' I didn't believe you at the time, Harlan went on, eager to make amends, but I do now. That's good. Mrs. Carr's tone was not at all reassuring. There was an awkward pause. Then Harlan, putting aside his obstinate pride, said the simple sentence which men of all ages have found it hardest to say, perhaps because it is the sign of utter masculine abasement. I'm sorry, dear. Will you forgive me? In a moment she was in his arms. It was partly my fault, she admitted, generously, from the depths of his coat collar. I think there must be something in the atmosphere of the house. We never quarreled before. And we never will again, answered Harlan confidently. What have you been burning? It was a mattress, whispered Dorothy, much ashamed. I tried to get a bed out, but it was too heavy. You funny, funny girl. How did you ever get a mattress out all alone? dragged it to an upper window and dumped it, she explained, blushing, then came down and dragged it some more. Claudius Tiberius didn't like to have me do it. I don't wonder, laughed Harland. That is, he added hastily, he couldn't have been pleased to see you doing it at all by yourself. Anybody would love to see a mattress burn. Shall we get some more? There are plenty. Let's not take all our pleasure at once, he suggested, with rare tact. One mattress a day. How will that do? We'll have it at night, cried Dorothy, clapping her hands. And when the mattresses are all gone, we'll do the beds and bureaus and the haircloth furniture in the parlor. Oh, I do so love a bonfire. Harlan's heart grew strangely tender, for it had been this underlying childishness in her that he had loved the most. She was stirring the ashes now, with as much real pleasure as though she were five instead of twenty-five. As it happened, Harlan would have been saved a great deal of trouble if he had followed out her suggestion and burned all of the beds in the house except two or three, but the balance between foresight and retrospection has seldom been exact. "'Beast of a smudge you're making,' he commented, choking. "'Get around to the other side, then. Why, Harlan, what's that?' "'What's what?' She pointed to a small metal box in the midst of the ashes." poem on spring probably put into the cornerstone by the builder of the mattress don't be foolish she said with assumed severity get me a pail of water with two sticks they lifted it into the water and waited impatiently enough until they were sure it was cool then dorothy asserting her right of discovery opened it with trembling fingers why ye she gasped Upon a bed of wet cotton lay a large brooch, made wholly of clustered diamonds, and a coral necklace, somewhat injured by the fire. "'Whose is it?' demanded Dorothy, when she recovered the faculty of speech. "'I should say,' returned Harlan, after due deliberation, "'that it belonged to you.' "'After this,' she said slowly, her eyes wide with wonder, "'we'll take everything apart before we burn it. Harlan was turning the brooch over in his hand and roughly estimating its value at two thousand dollars. "'Here's something on the back,' he said. "'R from E. March twelfth, 1865.' "'Rebecca from Ebenezer!' cried Dorothy. "'Oh, Harlan, it's ours! 
don't you remember the letter said my house and all its contents to my beloved nephew james harlan carr i remember said harlan but his conscience was uneasy none the less chapter two